Father, we, as always, Lord God, we want to have ears to hear. Lord, we want to have um, eyes to see. We want to have the ability, the capacity to understand what you're saying. Lord, we don't have any desire to just have a study tonight. Lord, we don't want to just have a discussion, an interesting discussion about your word or things like that. Lord, we want our hearts to be open. We want to receive revelation, and we want to leave here changed, God, because we know that your word, when it goes forth, it doesn't return void. And so, God, tonight, Lord, help us to have ears to hear, to receive this, and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I believe that the gospel is just good news, right? It's not bad news. It's not negative. It's good news. It's positive. And um, tonight what I want to look at with you is something that is very good, something that's very positive. Um, And it's one of those things that, especially if you've been a believer or Christian for any amount of time, this is something you've already thought about. But it may not be something that has actually sunk in. It may not be something that's really become revelation that produces any real change. And that's what I think is going to happen tonight. So first off, just think, think about this with me. Think about this question. How, how big is God? Now just think about it. You know, without an initial quick response, how big is God? How do, you, how do you begin to answer a question like that, right? Now, somebody might say, well, he's big enough, and that's true. And I think the closest way to answer that question is to say he's bigger than we think. He's bigger than we think. Because we don't have the capacity, we don't have the ability to be able to wrap our minds around how big God is. And so it's like we find ourselves in this place where we have to just accept the fact that he's bigger than we think. He's bigger than we're capable of really understanding. Um, The greatest minds, the greatest intellects on the earth right now, they don't have what it takes to wrap their minds around that idea, right? Now, our desire as human beings to understand things uh, is very persistent and stubborn. And sometimes we can't just accept that that's the way it is, right? Sometimes it's hard to accept that there is a mystery there, that there is something beyond our grasp, that there is something beyond our means, and we have to understand it. But how do you do that if you can't? How do you, do, how do you understand, how do you try to attempt to understand something that's beyond your ability to understand? And so what we do is we put God in a box. And what is a box? A box is just a set of limitations, right? That's all it is. It's a height limitation, a depth limitation, a length limitation. It's just a set of limitations. And our desire and our effort to understand him and to know him, 
we put God in a container that makes sense to us. And then everything that we see, everything that we know, everything that we understand about God can fit in here, and we feel like we can understand it. And maybe it makes us feel a little bit comfortable. But God's bigger than the box, amen? So when, when we think about God, we consider his nature, we come at it from a limited mindset, okay? That's kind of our baseline here. It's kind of the, where I want to start from. Sometimes when we think about God, we come at that from a limited mindset. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's a different question. How good is God? How good is God? We know he's good, right? He's a good, good father. How good is God? To try to understand that. Well, in order to understand how good God is, then we have to begin with a point of reference. And the point of reference that we begin with is the goodness that we know. So we, trying to understand the goodness of God, can only wrap our minds around that or attempt to by using the goodness that we, each one of us, understands the goodness that we know. But that's not enough, is it? We don't, we don't understand goodness to a, to, a, to a degree that's deep enough to be able to even comprehend how good God is. So we have to go back again to this idea He's better than I think. He's better than I can think. I don't, how good is God? I, I can't tell you how good he is. I just know that as good as I might think he is, he's better than that. How big is God? He's bigger than I can think. You can apply that to any of his attributes. His goodness, his strength, his love, his wisdom, his intelligence. God surpasses infinitely our ability to understand him. It doesn't, doesn't it make sense that if he surpasses our ability to understand him, that he might do things from time to time that we don't understand? Let me say that one more time. If God goes beyond our ability to understand him, doesn't it make sense that he might do things from time to time that's hard for us to understand? Have you ever read anything in the Bible and then walked away and thought, why did God do that? I mean, hopefully I'm not the only one, but I know I have. And you, you read something that God did and it's like, I don't understand that. Why did he do that? Um, there was a guy that wrote a book years back now. It's been a while. And it was a real popular book. It was a real controversial book. And in the book, he was talking about um, the, the, the references and the mentions of hell, how he didn't agree with that. And, even, you know, I know the Bible says this, but it can't be. And so he was taking an approach to this issue from inside the box, right? So he was looking at that issue, saying, I see what those words say but it doesn't fit in my box. And so he created an approach to that that was inside his books and his box. And then Francis Chan came out with a book that was kind of a response to it. And in this video that I want to show you, he kind of hits on this idea 
of trying to understand God, but then having to realize God is bigger than we are. God is greater than we are. And there are things that God does that's hard for us to understand. And so let's go ahead and show this video. Lately, there have been a lot of discussions about hell. And, and it's been good because it's caused me to restudy what I've always believed about hell. And, and it's interesting because some of the things that I thought were so clear, they're really not that clear in Scripture. And then there's other truths that I thought were, you know, questionable. And yet the more I study, I go, wow, that's actually crystal clear. But the one thing that's definitely come out of this study of this topic is, wow, it's been so humbling and so sobering. I mean, I, I know that I've, I've struggled with uh, pride my whole life, but God's kind of revealed it to a completely different level. I, I mean, the other day, the image came to my mind of Romans 9, where God compares me to a piece of clay. And he says, you're, you're like a piece of clay, and I'm the potter. And so just that, I thought, wow. That means I'm like a piece of clay trying to explain to other pieces of clay what the potter is like. Think about that for a second. It shows the silliness for any of us to think that we're an expert on him. Our only hope is that he would reveal to us what he is like and then we can just repeat those things. And in and, and Psalm 25, verse 9, he talks about how he explains his way to those who are humble. And so I'm going, hey, God, I want to be humble then because i got to know the truth about you. Humble me. Show me the pride in my life. Maybe the, the thing I'm most concerned about is, is this arrogance. Look, in Isaiah 55, God says, your thoughts are not like my thoughts and your ways are not as my ways he goes as high as the heavens are above the earth that's that's how much higher my ways are than your ways and that's how much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts so when we begin an argument with well i wouldn't believe in a god who would who would what do something that you wouldn't do or think in a way that's different from the way you think? Do you ever even consider the possibility that maybe the Creator's sense of justice is actually more developed than yours? And that maybe His love and His mercy are perfect and that you could be the one that is flawed. So I remember the first time I saw that video, and it brought me back to when I was a kid. Because, and by the way, we're not talking about hell tonight. We're actually talking about how good God is. Um, but the point, the underlying point here is that I think sometimes we assume that we know and that we understand the depth of his love, the depth of his goodness. And what I guess I'm trying to say here, not to jump to the end or anything like that, 
I don't know that we have the ability to understand how good he really is. So when you think you know how good God is, there's more. But so anyway, when I was a kid, um, I would look at my life, look at my behavior, look at sin in my life. And yeah, sometimes I thought about this as a kid. And I imagined how I would feel if I was God. You see the mistake I made there? I looked at my life, I looked at my behavior, I looked at the sin in my life, and I imagined how I would feel if I was God. So I was thinking about all this from inside the box. And um, what I would do sometimes, I, I, I got so into this trap in my thinking, I guess, that you know, I knew that God was perfect, way up here. And I knew that I was not perfect, way down here. And I just believed that if I did the right thing, if I prayed the right way, if, if, if I was able to do the right things, then that would move me closer to God. And because God is perfect, Right? And I'm not perfect. And the only way to bridge the gap is for me to change my level of perfection, right? This is the way I'm thinking as a little kid. And so the more that I could do something good, the closer I could get to God. So therefore, my relationship with God was based on my goodness. That's where it was coming from. And to give you an example of this, (laughs) when I would go to bed at night, I would pray before I went to sleep. And when I prayed, when I got to the end, I would evaluate how I prayed. And if I didn't think that I was sincere enough, then I would repray everything again. And I'd start all over again and I'd pray it again and then I would evaluate it. And if it wasn't sincere, if I felt like there was some rushing through it or trying to get to then I would do it again. Now, this is what I would do laying there in my bed. Even to the point that the very end of the prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, I would go through each word. And I would do this until I was like, okay, whoo, I think that was a good one. And somehow, you know, that was a sincere enough uh, prayer to, you know, get God's attention. Thank God I was wrong. And so uh, it, 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 it kind of all came to a head for me. Um, there was a moment when I remember this idea of forgiveness and what Jesus had done, all of these things that I already knew. I mean, you understand I grew up in a church similar to this one. I already knew these things. You could ask me. As, and at this point, I'm, I'm about 13 years old, what the story I'm going to tell you now. And you could ask me about grace. You could ask me about the blood of Jesus, the cross, forgiveness, sin, all this stuff. And I could tell you all of the right things, all right? I could tell you all the right things. I'd heard them. I understood them on an intellectual level. From inside the box, I could tell you what they were. But I didn't get it, right? 
It wasn't, a, it wasn't the type of revelation in my heart that actually produced any real change in me. And there was an evening at, on a Sunday evening service, and I think we have a picture. Let's put that up there. Okay. So there's this picture. That's, you know, this, this, this old Catholic church. Um, and uh, our church at the time was not a Catholic church, but we were meeting in this building. And that's a more recent picture. You know, with the, I'm talking about like 35 years ago. But all the way at the back, on the left-hand side, I remember exactly where I was sitting. And it was a Sunday night on a Sunday night service. And I remember the light coming on and realizing all of this sin that I'm trying to deal with on my own every day to try to climb this hill to get closer to God has already been dealt with by Jesus. Now, again, on an intellectual level, I got it. I could tell you that, but it did not register until that night. And then the light came on, and I began a journey at that point of grace, understanding the grace of God, and getting free um, from a works-based relationship with God. And it has been a journey. And I'm still learning. But that was a big, big turning point. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that the audacity of holding God to our standard or sense of justice causes us all kinds of trouble. And uh, it, it, what it does is our sense, our sense, inside the box sense of justice causes misunderstandings about things like God's nature. It makes us believe God can't tolerate our bad behavior. Our identity, it tells us that we are all sinners at heart. About the power of sin, it tells us that that, that sin separates us from God. We're separated every time we sin. It gives us a misunderstanding about healing that healing is possible through the blood of Jesus, but not available to those whose hearts aren't right, which is another way of saying that sin has separated us from God. And our liberty, which which tells us Jesus sets us free, but our sinful choices have reforged the chains that Jesus broke. Now, the problem with all this is that there is truth in all of that. It's not that everything that I told you is a lie. There is truth in it. But it's misunderstood truth, and, it, and maybe not misunderstood, it's incomplete truth. And so much of that changes when you begin to understand what Jesus has done. So what we have happening, what we have at work right here, to be able to understand this and really get free of this, is we have to understand that there are two systems. The Bible describes two systems for living. They're contained in two covenants, and it's pretty, it's kind of a no-brainer. You just open your Bible, it's already, it's already uh, broken up for you right there. You've got the old covenant, you've got the new covenant. And these are the covenants that God made with mankind. The first covenant we call the law, and it's harsh and unbending. It's something we strive for, but we can never attain. And then in the new covenant, came through Jesus, he defeated sin, on the cross, and rose from the dead. Now, 
the law was from God, right? The law was from God. The law had a purpose. Um, The law was there to remind people of their powerlessness to defeat sin and to reach God. The law was actually there to beat you down and make you realize that you could not do it on your own. And if you follow the whole story of what God did through redemption and through the cross, the law was actually there to drive you to grace, to take you, to bring you to a point where you realized, I cannot do this on my own. I'll never be good enough. I'll never be clean enough. I'll never be pure enough. I'll never have enough love. I'll never have, I can't do it. That's what the law was there to teach us to do. And so it had a purpose. In the Old Covenant, the law, uh, God dealt with you according to your righteousness. And in the New Covenant, God deals with you according to Jesus' righteousness. Which one do you think is a better deal? There you go. I mean, it goes back to the box, though, really. Because, again, we're talking about these two different ways of thinking. One way is I work towards the favor of God. And the other way is I work from the favor of God. But there's, I told you there's this sense of justice that we have. And when we look at the law of its strict requirements and severe punishments, there's some part of this sense of justice inside of us that that makes sense. That makes sense. That fits in the box. And I'm telling you this, I don't know if it's from being a pastor or if it's just from being a Christian who's had a lot of Christian friends. Lots and lots and lots of people struggle with this. Lots of people. This idea that I'm not good enough. God doesn't care about me. How could God love me? And, you know, the problem is that you're trapped in the box. But God's bigger than the box. He had a plan to deal with the sin that was outside the box. But your identity and the way that you think about yourself is all wrapped up in which one of those two mindsets you choose. Do you choose the new covenant that Jesus made with us, or do you choose the fragments of the old covenant, which are obsolete? And they are obsolete. You know, Jesus came, Jesus said that he didn't come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. And what that means is is that he came to satisfy the law. He didn't come to reestablish it. He came to fulfill it. Um, In Hebrews, it says this, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the, the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay, so let's try to get out of the box right here. Let me ask you this question. What does God see when he looks at you? And just think about that for a second. 
When God looks at you, what does he see? Now, we know God sees everything, right? And I'm sure you've heard many times that God sees everything you've done, the deepest, darkest secret. You know, those things that you've done that you think nobody knows about, you can't hide from God. He sees everything, right? So let me, maybe let me rephrase the question. What does God choose to see when he looks at you? Based on what we know about God, what does he choose to see when he looks at you? John chapter 1 verse 12 says this, but to all who did receive him, how many people in here received him? Lots of people. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So the answer is, when God looks at you, he sees his children. He sees his kids. When God looks at you, he sees family. That's what he sees. That's what he chooses to see. Does he see a list of all your sins? Listen, Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think I literally read that verse in every single sermon I preach. If I go back through my notes, I think it's in every one. But it's so pivotal. It's so foundational. We have to understand this. What this verse is saying is it's saying that the old is gone and the new has been born. There's a dividing line. There's a distinction. I want to read you a quote from Graham Cook that talks about this. It says, he says this, We are dead in Christ. God does not see what is wrong with us because he nailed all those things to the cross and has no desire to resurrect them. He only sees what is currently missing from our experience of Christ and is deeply committed to that ongoing experience by the power of the indwelling spirit. He's focused on our new nature in Jesus. That means when he puts his finger on a part of our life that is not fully functioning in relationship with him, he's actually pointing to the site of our next upgrade in Christ. God has no bad thought toward us, only a desire to see us conform to the image of Christ. This is the definition of grace that I like the best and I believe is the most accurate. Grace is the ability to become the person that God sees when he looks at you. Let me say it one more time. Grace is the ability, the God-given ability, to become the person that God sees when he looks at you. Here's a weird thought. I am becoming someone. Now, I can think of a lot of people that I have a lot of respect for, right? I mean, like Billy Graham. That's a pretty safe bet, right? There's a guy who led millions of people to Jesus in his life, a man of integrity, man of honor. I respect that guy a lot, but I am not becoming Billy Graham. I'm not becoming... Robert Morris, or insert whatever great man or woman of God that you really respect. No, I'm becoming 
Aaron poor. Now you could say, well, you, that's, that's ridiculous. You are Aaron poor. No, I'm becoming the Aaron poor that God sees when he looks at me. I'm in the process of becoming that person. That's the goal of my life is to become that person because that's the person who will be walking in the love and the power of God that will do the things that God has called him to do on this earth in his life. That's my goal. I'm becoming that person. And every little bit of maturity that I get, every little bit of understanding that I get, as I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind, I am going more and more step by step to becoming Aaron Poor, the one that God sees when he looks at me. So grace is the power of God flowing into your life to do all of those impossible things that you could never do on your own in the law. Because the law requires, but grace enables. The law requires, grace enables. Grace enables you to do the work of God. Grace doesn't enable you to sin. Grace is not the freedom to do what I want. Grace is the ability to do what God wants. And that's a huge difference. So listen, the law brings a commandment that you are left to try to perform. Grace brings a commandment that he enables you to perform. So different. And the notion that grace has no rules or commands is not true. Grace is the ability to do the work. And without grace, you're left with your own strength, your own wisdom, your own creativity, and your own natural mind does not have what it takes to carry out God's supernatural plan. You have to flow in grace. So here's a question to test where you are in all of this. What is your motivation to live a holy life? What is your motivation to live a righteous life? We all want to do that, right? We want to live a life that's pleasing to God. We want to be holy. We want to be righteous. We want to be good, Christ-like people. What's your motivation? What motivates you to do that? Because if it's from grace, then your motivation will be love. God's my father. I desire to please him. God is kind, and his kindness leads me to repentance. But if your motivation is coming from the law, then it's going to be fear. God will judge me. He will only withhold his wrath for so long. Or maybe God will turn away from me. He cannot come close to sin in my life. You might say something like, God is angry with me because I have sin in my life that's out of control. Or God doesn't like me anymore because he knows how sinful and disobedient I am. And those things are hard to say when we're standing up and singing you're a good, good father, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you, it's who I am. It's hard to reconcile those two things when we're singing a song like that. And speaking of fathers and sons, um, I want to put a picture up here on the screen. This is my son, David. Yeah. And that picture is from his first uh, attempt, and it was a successful attempt at smoking meat. He, he picked out the meat, 
He picked out the rub, he picked out the wood, and he picked out the sauce. And I helped him, but he smoked it, and we had that chicken for dinner, and it was awesome. And I was very proud of him, and he did a great job. And I am proud of him on a lot of levels. Now, I have five kids, four girls, and David. And so, of course, I love all my kids equally, but I have one boy, and so he's unique, and he's special. And I do love him, and I am proud of him, and it sure breaks my heart when he doesn't do the things I tell him to do, because then it ends our relationship as father and son. Because if he doesn't do what I ask him to do, then we can't relate as father and son. It causes uh, a separation between us. And the only hope to restore that is if he can do more things that I ask and begin to work his way back into that relation. What? In, it, it, that's crazy, right? That's ridiculous. I would never say that. I would never say that about my son. Why? Because I think I'm a good father. But that's what we say about our, our father. That's what we say about God. And the things that we would never, ever say about our relationship with our kids or with our parents, we say those things about God. We say that that's the nature of our relationship with our heavenly father. Why do we think we're better parents than God? Why did, how can that thought even come into our minds? Because he is a good father. And listen, the basis of my relationship with David is not his performance. It's that he was born into my family and he's my son. The basis of my relationship with David is his identity. And if we would have adopted David, then he would be adopted into my family and be my son. And you are both born and adopted into the family of God. And listen to this. What sustains my relationship with David is my unconditional love towards him. Now, he does things that aren't great all the time. He gets into trouble. He makes mistakes. He makes bad choices. But my love for him doesn't change. And my unconditional love for David sustains that relationship. And God's unconditional love for you sustains that relationship. There isn't anything, listen to this, there is nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. You are powerless to change God's love towards you. And you cannot force him away from you. Jesus deals with this in an extremely powerful, eloquent way. In, when he tells the story of the prodigal son. And we're coming into a close here. And I want to just do a quick little study on this with you right now. So Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Usually when you hear this story, you hear that he got so poor that he had to eat the same food as the pigs. No, he didn't even, he wanted to eat the food of the pigs, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, press the pause button. What has happened? What has happened? Number one, he came to his senses and became aware of sin. Okay? He came to his senses and became aware of sin. Number two, he updated his identity because of that sin, and he is now unworthy according to the way he sees himself. His personal self-identity, he is now unworthy because he became aware of this sin. Number three, he has enough good sense to be in the father's house, but he will not identify as a son, only as a servant. That's what's happening right now with the son. So let's finish the story. This is what happened when the son became sin conscious. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He's lost, he's found, and they begin to celebrate. So now what is happening? The father ignores the son's speech about being unworthy. He doesn't even give it the time of day. He just ignores it. Number two, the father immediately restores sonship, royalty, and authority. Bring the best robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals. There's a whole teaching on that, but the father immediately restores those things. It's not like a three-year plan to eventually work his way back into those places. Immediately, the father restores those things. And then number three, he calls for his servants to start a barbecue and throw a party. What we, amen. What we have here are two severely conflicting views on who the son is. The son sees one perspective. The father sees a totally different perspective. The first perspective is from the son. This is the perspective of the law. My behavior, my performance, my sin has made me unworthy, and I am no longer a son of the house. The second perspective is from the father. This is the perspective of grace. My son was lost, now he's found. He never stopped being my son. Even when he was partying and blowing his money on sin, even when he was in the pig pen, he never stopped being my son. And he never will stop being my son. And in case you guys don't know, the only perspective that matters is the father's perspective. That's the one that matters. The the way the father sees you 
That's what matters. And you've got to see yourself the way that he sees you in order to become that person. How can you become the person he sees if you can't see it? You have to be able to do that. And so as we begin to wrap up here, let's have the band come back up. There's just one more thing I want to very quickly um, hit before we close this down. And that's this, that when you talk about grace versus the law, there is inevitably somewhere going to be an argument about, well, grace is just a license to go sin, right? Grace is just saying you can just go do whatever you want. We might as well just go do whatever we want to do because we're forgiven, right? But that's not grace. That's not what the Bible says. 1 John 3, 3 says this, and this out of the Passion Translation. It says, and all who focus their hope on him will always be purifying themselves just as Jesus is pure. When we relate to God on the basis of his kindness and goodness and grace, we confess our sin and we repent. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We live a sin-free life, not because of fear, but because of love. When we relate to God on the basis of fear, we, we tend to hide sin, not repent. And I have one last story. When I was really little, um, I would get taken to my grandparents' house. And my grandparents lived in this building that had been a grocery store, and then they lived on the first floor. They had an apartment that they rented out up above, and then kind of a, like a utility room that had a wood stove in it up on the top floor. And sometimes when I'd go over there, my grandpa and I would get away and go upstairs and uh, there was an old guy that lived in their apartment up there. And if this guy was gone, uh, my grandpa would get his key and get into this guy's apartment and go see what kind of snacks he had and basically steal this guy's food. <laughs> and then, then we would go into the wood stove room and have this guy's cookies or whatever it was and see, here's the thing. My grandma would not let my grandpa smoke his pipe. And so we would go up there, and my grandpa would build a fire in the wood stove so that there's smoke and all this kind of stuff, and he'd smoke his pipe up there in peace. And then every once in a while, we'd be up there, and I'd be eating cookies, and he'd be smoking his pipe, and you'd hear this, hey, what are you doing up there? And then you'd see my grandpa putting his pipe out and all this kind of stuff. Well... That's because hiding sin is a response that comes from fear. <laughs> he was afraid of what was going to happen. But it's an indication, if that's something that's happening in your life, it's an indication that you're in the box. That there's a works-based, a performance-based thing going on in the way you relate to God. And you know, I don't want to just talk about theology today. Theology should be an invitation to experience. And so here's what I want to do. is the band does this last song, um, let's all stand. 
And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the Father's heart to you. I want you to see yourself as the Father sees you. And if there are any chains of religion and law and works-based thinking, let's let those chains be broken and fall off of us right now. Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to fill this room, to touch every heart, to open every eye, to speak truth to lies in the name of Jesus. And let us, let us see ourselves as you see us, Lord. We are who you say we are. Amen.